Good evening, Pittsburgh. This is John Marty. And I'm Elizabeth Caniano. And you're listening to Heinz Radio, Policy That Matters on WRCT 88.3 FM. Thanks for tuning in. We're excited to be back on the air this semester and continuing our discussions of policies shaping our political, economic, and social landscape. This summer marked the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, a landmark civil rights case that prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. Today, we'll be speaking with Mitz- Richard Moritzer, the City of Pittsburgh's ADA coordinator, on the importance of this legislation and how it has shaped accessibility services and city planning in Pittsburgh. Richard is a native Pittsburgher. He has served as the city's ADA coordinator since 2008. He works in the city's strategic planning office. Richard, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so as we mentioned, this summer marked the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. And this civil rights law prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. Could you give us a brief overview of the types of rights that are protected under the ADA? Okay. Well, well, the rights that are protected under the ADA are inclusion and participation. The whole idea of the ADA is people should be able to fully uh, involve themselves in society economically, socially, and politically. Uh, it's, not any, it's not special rights. Uh, all it does is level the playing field. So it provides people with um, more access to parking, more access to buildings. Uh, it requires more access to programs. Um, but it doesn't, it, it isn't a free pass for people to park anywhere they want and not get tickets. They still have to follow the rules. Um, it doesn't require, uh, for example, uh, landlords to make uh, special accommodations for housing other than in certain circumstances and in certain numbers of units. So basically what it is is it's a way for people who have issues with communicating or understanding or uh, getting around uh, to better fully participate. Before the ADA was passed, were there any civil rights protections for individuals with disabilities? I actually researched this because I didn't know some of this stuff and <laughs> found out some very interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, there were a number. The ADA was the culmination, actually, of a long series of laws that were very desperate. And the ADA sort of brought them all together. What's generally considered the first uh, landmark legislation was um, the Architectural Barrier Act of 1968 which requires that all buildings constructed with federal funds must have uh, barriers removed. And that's not only, that's constructed with federal funds. For example, all hospitals are constructed with federal funds. You can't build a hospital on private funds these days. Um, A lot of uh, convention centers and meeting halls are built with support from federal funds. So all of those had to be accessible. And that's actually the first time there was a general law protecting people with disabilities. And it was primarily mobility disabilities, but it was really, really the first. And when you talk about accessibility and removing barriers, what exactly do you mean well, by barriers? What I mean is that you need to be able to get into and through the property. So or you need to have an, an entrance that's no step, okay. a ramp or level. You need to have... Uh, elevators so that people can get up and down. Steers have to be constructed 
so that people with mobility issues can get up and down the stairs. And that, that's, that, people find that very interesting because you don't think of stairs as being accessible. But a all disabilities, be it mobility, be it uh, sensory, or be it cognitive, are spectrums. I love that the autism uh, community brought in the word spectrum because they're all spectrums. And there are levels of disability. Uh, my mother um, is getting up in years. Um, and she has trouble with steps now. Uh, but if there's railings and if the steps are enclosed, which makes them accessible, she can do them. Okay. So, you know, and as a matter of fact, we were somewhere on Sunday and there was an elevator and she looked at some, she says, I can do these steps. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very proud of the fact that she could do those steps. But, you know, so it, it's, you know, but you, you, need, you need both the steps to be accessible and an elevator for people who can't use steps. Uh, you need clear path of travel. You need uh, three foot width for any hallway and uh, five foot for passing room. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of times uh, buildings are built and they have to add space for the hallway than they originally expected uh, because uh, you need that room for the people with uh, wheelchairs, uh, using wheelchairs. And actually that's becoming an issue now because the disability community like every other community in this country, are gaining weight. And they're actually starting to make wider wheelchairs and scooters. So there's a discussion right now about, is three feet enough? The city maintains, uh, for public right-of-ways, five feet already. Uh, and, you know, and the question's going to soon become, is that enough? Because that includes you know, street furniture, Sort of sorts of things. So, um, but it's you know, uh, but that's that's what we mean by uh, architectural barriers. Okay. The buildings in the way of people getting around. Okay. And then in um, 1973, uh, there a law was passed that Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act saying that public agencies can't discriminate, and that includes public universities and other public institutions, um, and that was and. and by discriminating, that means not allow them to participate in a program anyone else does. That's as close to the ADA for the ADA is. So, you know, that a lot of people say, well, you know, before the ADA, there was a lot of issues around the rehabilit a lot of uh, cases around the Rehabilitation Act. But again, that was only public agencies. Um, and then IDEA came in. A law that required that schools provide equal education for students. They couldn't be shut away in um, uh, their own setting. They couldn't be required to be homeschooled. And even today, there's cases where rural school districts and some smaller suburban school districts still require to homeschool students with disabilities because they're disruptive. Really? And there are cases, there was a, about a couple months ago, there was a case where uh, one of the school districts, I think just outside Allegheny County, that was in the newspaper, was doing that and the parents were suing them. So, you know, so we still have a ways to go, but the law was in, in um, uh, 1975, that was first established, and that made an incredible difference. Suddenly, students with abilities could go to college because they were getting a regular diploma from a regular school. Um, and uh, I was at a conference where um, three of the members there um, were reminiscing um, 
one of them was one of the speakers were reminiscing about being the first, uh, and they were all wheelchair users, being the first students on the Pitt campus who were wheelchair users, and how the university did not know how to accommodate them. In 1975? Well, no, this was... Or before? This was, no, this was shortly after. Shortly after. Shortly. Oh, once they... But this was, you know, when they were getting into the mainstream of education, and they were saying, you know, that, you know, they were, they were like, you know, this school really wasn't ready for this yet. And then um, uh, in 1980, the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act, CRIPA, uh, was passed, and that gave the Justice Department the power to sue institutions that violate the rights of people held against their will. Hmm. Um, and uh, so that was sort of the precursor for Olmstead, uh, which for some reason isn't even on this list, and I find that horrifying, uh, because Olmstead is the Brown versus Board of Education uh, of the disability community. It basically says that if you provide services for people in the institution, you must provide it for people in their home as well. And we still haven't implemented that after years. Um, because the, uh, uh, there are certain elements in the uh, uh, nursing home community that still want people with disabilities mm. to use their facilities. Mm. And um, if in, to some public safety, uh, you know, elements, it's like it's, they feel safer with people being watched than being at their home alone. Um, I've, there's been some cases which I've been tracking down where actually paramedics have said to people after they've come to their house uh, because they've had an incident, been able to, unable to get up, that maybe they should think about going to a home. Hmm. And, you know, and, and that is not the correct, correct response, the, uh, you know. But this is this this sort of predates that and allows people to sue if they're being uh, held against their will. And then in 1988, fair housing came, and that's a lot of what people don't understand. The ADA does not cover housing. Never has, never will. Fair housing covers housing, and they are very different laws. Now, I've, no, I've gone to uh, conferences for the ADA, and I'll bring up a fair housing issue, and people will say, that's not the ADA. We can't talk about that. Okay. Well, there's not an equivalent system for fair housing accommodations, you know. Um, so um, I generally, and a lot of the ADA coordinators generally, do do some fair housing. The difference between the ADA and fair housing is that ADA is a requirement in advance. Fair housing is a requirement by request. Mm -hmm. So that you have to be able to make a unit uh, accessible. But you don't have to make it accessible unless someone asks for it. Mm. So, um, so the entrance has to be accessible because that's something that you're not going to retrofit. Uh, and if it's more than three stories, you have to put in an elevator. But if it's less than three stories, you don't. And then, because the feeling is that if it's less than three stories, unless it's specifically a building for people with disabilities, probably you can accommodate everyone on the first floor. So as long as that particular building is sort of accommodating individuals on the first floor, it would 
kind it, of meet a certain level of acceptability. It would, it would meet. It would, it would be in compliance. Okay. You know, and I, you know, and I, I, you know, I've been to, I've been to buildings where there are just three floors and they couldn't accommodate someone on the first floor, and they've actually put in a lift along the side of the building, and that's fine too. Mm -hmm. But that's not required. They did that for the tenant, but that's really not required. As long as there's, uh, as long as there is enough space to make accessible parking spaces, to get in the door, and to get above the third floor if there's more than three floors, you've met your requirements, and then it's by request. But on the same time, while the ADA is very specific about what a service animal is, fair housing has comfort animals. So um, you have to accommodate someone who has, who has a, a agoraphobia and can't go out without their pet rat. And actually, I talked to someone from Zephyr School who, who said that became an issue because she was, she was talking to a student in one of the apartment buildings that a university was running, and the roommate was all upset because this guy needed his pet rat, and the roommate didn't like the rat running around the apartment doing his rat business all over the place. And, <laughs> <laughs> and when, he came to, when he came to the meeting to discuss it, there's a sort of mediation, the, the rat was in his pocket because he couldn't leave the house without the rat, and Tia was hanging out, it was like, she's like, <laughs> But, you know, but under fair housing... We have to accommodate. You have to accommodate that, and you know, and that so so and and that becomes a particular issue uh, when there's like close quarters, and you have to figure out how to accommodate everybody. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, fear housing, like I say, is very different. It's in many ways it's as strong as the ADA, but it's a whole different set of laws. Um, and then there was the assisted technology initiative. Um, which uh, increased accessibility to and availability of, of technology. And Pittsburgh's very lucky to have a very nice uh, technology lending bank at Three River Center for Independent Living, which is supported by the government. Um, so that, you know, and uh, actually, again, my mother used to live in Florida, and my mother would hate that I'm talking about her. <laughs> um, and um, at, at a certain point, she could no longer hear the phone, and I asked, I, I found out her Center for Independent Living down in Florida. The Center for Independent Living is a wonderful... There's a couple of national umbrella organizations. There is the Center for Independent Living. Every single American lives in an area covered with the Center for Independent Living. Trickle's one of the better ones, but they're all over the place. And she lived in uh, the west coast of Florida, and I found her her Center for Independent Living, and she got from them a... A visual phone, one that lights up when it rings. But everyone is under an ADA center, which are uh, centers for people to just get general information. So a lot of times something will come up and I'll read the ADA, and the ADA is brutal to read. It's written by lawyers for, for lawyers. lawyers. And, you know, and I'm reading this stuff, and it's like, but what are they saying? So, <laughs> so I will call the Mid-Atlantic Center, and I will say, but what are they? And, and they'll put it in plain English. And they also, each center has a specialty, and our center, our center is specialty is, is conferences and organization, and I work with them on that. So each center has their own specialty, but they're all available for information, and it's all about information for them. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Center for Independent Living is all about uh, assistance. But it, it, both systems are wonderful. Both systems are supported by the federal government and they really make a difference. 
and that was 1988, and then two years later, we got the ADA. It sort of brought that all together. Yeah, I, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting that we were talking about were some of the accommodations and housing, and just, you know, city ha- has a, or Pittsburgh has a lot of just old buildings, and sort of as the ADA coordinator here, do you find the to be a particular challenge, kind of working with some of the... <laughs> The, the historical preservation versus the accommodation? Okay, I have said, I have said publicly that you can, how would I put it best, uh, if you can't make accommodations contextual and appealing, you're lazy. You can always find a way, and I'm very lucky because our historic preservation planner used to be the ADA compliance officer for the Park Service so oh, she nice. understands accessibility very well. One of, one of my biggest challenges was there was a big stone building that needed to put in a ramp, and a concrete ramp would have just destroyed the character of this huge, beautiful, big stone building. Um, and uh, uh, we did some research, and we found a nylon ramp that was very strong but very thin, and stone veneer so that they could put in the nylon ramp, put stone veneer across it so that it matched the stone of the building. So, you know, there's all, there is always a way. Mm-hmm. You know, m- m- more the problem is space. Um, because a lot of our older buildings, and topography, because a lot of old, uh, older houses can't be made accessible. Um, and uh, one of the programs we have is uh, the visitability task order, which doesn't make houses accessible, it makes them um, visitable. And it's a tax credit which allows people to deduct uh, money from their, uh, uh, deduct a credit from their Real estate tax, uh, $2,500, because I think it's $500 a year if you can spread out over the five years, for both the city and the county, on additional taxes. So really just making your house visitable itself won't get you much. But if you're doing renovations or building new, that's a really nice piece of change off your tax bill. Um, if you make your house a no-step entrance, um, a clear path of travel from a bus stop or parking space, um, a clear path of travel through a portion of the house, uh, accessible restroom or powder room, and uh, light switches and plugs that are at an accessible height. Uh, and now the standard is light switches and um, uh, plugs at an accessible height. So that's, that's if, if, if you're doing any sort of work, that's going to happen. Uh, but if you do the other four things, um, you can you can get uh, uh, $500 off from the city if you're in the city and $500 off if you're in the city or the county uh, from your uh, increase in your uh, tax bill, which is which is a good incentive, and we've really been happy with that. It's made a lot of difference for people. Now, like I say, it's not not full accessibility, but for example, if you know if you become disabled. There's at least a portion of the house you can get around, mm-hmm. and you know, and I know, I know a number of people who who have uh, you know who have houses that are visitable and and they break a hip and and they uh, they they get a hospital bed in their living room and they can get around. So you know, it it, it makes a bit of a difference. 
The biggest issue, of course, we have is accessible housing. The disability community really has a problem with that. And it's the very poor can get accessible housing because the housing authority has their own uh, disability coordinator. And um, he, does a, he does a wonderful job. And he makes sure that uh, under fair housing, everyone's accommodated. Uh, and the very rich, of course, don't have a problem because they can do what they want. But the middle class has a serious issue. We get money, the city and the county both get money every year from the Community Development Block Grant Program for homeowners who want to make their houses accessible. And four months into the program, the money's always gone. And this is in addition to the visitability. Yeah, this is this is this is a grant. Okay. This is an upfront grant you can get uh, to put in a ramp, uh, you know, to get a steer glide. And, you know, I've been to a, a couple houses where they actually have steer glides outside. Who knew they made outside steer glides? Well, they do. I was at this one house, and uh, this woman um, uh, was uh, requesting a handicapped parking space, and there were some issues with the location, and I went out to see what was going on. And I looked up, and she was, the house was at the top of this huge flight of steps. And I said, there ain't no way she needs a handicap. And then I noticed at the very top there was this outside steer glide. So, you know, she, she, she had retrofitted her reeling to take the steer glide and had the steer glide go down, and she really did need it, and, and we did give it to her. But it was one of those things where, you know, I, I had to go see. Uh, but, yeah, uh, so um, there, there's money for that, but it's never anywhere near enough. And, you know, so, you know, it, it, it's an issue with the disability community. Housing is, I would say that housing is a complaint I get the most. Could you give us a sense of other types of services that you, that, that are provided from your office. Okay. For people with disabilities. Okay, well, um, actually, technically we're not service providers. Okay. But we do do programs to help people with disabilities. Um... Uh, the, the flip side of the uh, visitability tax credit is our one-step program. I always call it the other side of the coin because that has to do specifically with businesses. And what that is, under the ADA, the city cannot require a business to be accessible. We can require it to be accessible if they come in for a permit. But if they're already operating, we can't require that. You know, you, you hear people, I don't know if you still do, but when I was growing up, if you were making a big deal about something, they say, don't make a federal case out of it. Well, with the ADA, you have to make a federal case out of it. There's no other way to enforce it. Um, so what we've done is we've set up a program, which actually I've spoken around the country about because it's so unique. It's the one-step program. It's, it's, it's one step for two reasons. It's one step because it's designed to move one step from a business. That's all you can do. If it's any more than that, you can't do it. And it's also one step because the key element of that is that we take the application through the process. So all we bring it down just one step, and we run it through the process. When we talked to architects originally about what their biggest problem was with um, the uh, uh, getting a ramp put in, is um, they had to come down three or four times and pay for parking, and it was just a pain in the butt. I said, well, what if we did that all for you? And the architect said, oh, that would make it so much easier. So, you know, so you bring down, we send out what has to be in the packet. 
it comes in, we review it, we tell them what else we need, and they can email it to us. And then we walk it through the system. And we waived all the city fees, well, all the legislative fees, building inspections, all their own fees, but all the legislative fees have been waived. And we also have four architects, I believe it's four architects, in the packet who are willing to do the work because we make it so easy, who are willing to do the work for way below cost or for free. So, you know, there's really no reason for people not to take out a step and put in a ramp. And it's been, you know, everyone said when I was putting this together, Richard, it's a good idea, but no one's going to agree to it. No one's going to, but they're all saying, it's a good idea and I would want to do it, but no one will agree with it. And I thought, I'll get them all in a room. They'll all say that. They'll all agree to it. And they did. So, you know, and it's, it's been one of our more successful programs. So we do that. Um, we have been working with hospitals on accessibility. We have put together probably the first ever, or out of time, uh, we've put together um, um, the first ever hospital compliance guidelines for the deaf, deaf, blind, and hard of hearing at the hospital's requests because they knew what they were supposed to do. They didn't know how to do it. And right now we're working on a companion document the, for the intellectual and developmentally disabled community so that, you know, we're, you know, we're making hospital, helping hospitals to be more compliant because they want to be and they don't know how. Um, we're working with the hoarding task force on hoarding, which has just become designated as a, as a cognitive disability recently. Uh, we're putting in um, hearing loops, which is really new, uh, in senior centers. We got money to do three senior centers this year. It's the first time we're putting in hearing loops in public buildings for the uh, 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 hearing, low hearing community. Uh, and, of course, the audible traffic signals, uh, which we're putting in extensively across the city. Uh, within 10 years, we should have all the traffic signals audible in the city, which will make a big difference for the blind community. So, you know, and so there's a lot of really good things. Oh, we're also working very hard on web compliance. Not only make, are we making all of our city web pages compliant under the new standards, which technically aren't even the standards yet. The federal government hasn't released the standards, but on a bunch of cases they've said what they wanted, what they're going to do. They sort of told us what they were going to do, and so we're following that. And um, not only that, but a couple of uh, uh, organizations have asked us to check out their web pages for accessibility and we're perfectly willing to do that. We will go out to a we'll go out to a building if a uh, contractor calls us and do an accessibility audit in advance. Uh, as a matter of fact, part of this celebration this year was a, a radio show in a studio in the south side and um, they asked us to come out and do an accessibility audit of their station and we made a number of recommendations uh, which, which, which they implemented in enough time for the radio station uh, uh, show, including in putting a portable ramp for the stage because you couldn't get on to the stage, which is a big thing. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I'll go out and I will do that, um, uh, or we will do that. I, I have, as, uh, as Liz knows, I have uh, wonderful, I'm a, I'm, I'm a one-man shop, but I have a wonderful staff of college and high school interns who do an incredible job. 
and a lot of the work they do is, you know, is them. They bring wonderful skills and talents. And while I'm not supposed to do this, I will tell anyone, if you want to do an internship with me, let me know, because uh, we can really use, really use the help. Um, they do a lot of really good work. They bring skills and talents I do not have. Um, and uh, it's just wonderful to work with college students because they're bright, they're creative, they're hardworking. Uh, I keep on telling people they haven't been worn down yet. So, <laughs> so they're not, you know, they're not, oh, this again. You know, uh, but uh, but um, so we will do those audits. We will, we will do an audit for, I have a high school student now who's actually doing web audits. Uh, so um, he will do an, uh, we will do an audit for web pages that want to be checked. Uh, if people need advice on how to make their meetings more accessible, we will do that. We have lists of captioning uh, uh, program, uh, captioning companies and um, uh, interpreting companies. Uh, so we will do that. So we will uh, we will be able to help anyone become more accessible. Because, you know, in my mind, accessibility is a goal that's not just about what the city does, it's mm -hmm. about what the city has. So we want to make, you know, we want to make this, you know, I was at a, uh, the Trickle annual dinner two years ago, and they introduced uh, the uh, accessibility coordinator for Chicago and saying that she is making Chicago the most accessibility accessible city in the nation, and everyone at my table says, but Richard, that's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for giving us a sense of really what goes on in your office and the different types of programs uh, that you provide for people uh, with disabilities. Uh, well, thank you. I really appreciated it. Uh, it's, great to, it's great to let people know that we're here and we're doing good work. And it's, it's always great to reach out to the next generation. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and we will tune in with you again next week. Um, this is Elizabeth Caniano. And this is John Marty. And we're on WRCT 88.3 FM. Have a great evening.